So we are going through the gospel of Jesus according to Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read this to kind of set us up, and then we'll talk. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Unbelief. So why do you believe someone? Let me give you an illustration, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. So I bet it was 20 years ago. My wife and I went with my brother-in-law and his wife, and we went to the coast over to Port Orford, and we went fishing. And if you've been to Port Orford, they don't have a dock where you can drop your boat into the ocean. Instead, you have to go out, and they actually pick up your boat, and they drop it in the ocean for you, but you need to pay them $10. And my crew just doesn't go that way. We're like, we'll launch it off the beach just to show you, just to save our 10 bucks. So that's what we did. We launched off the beach, and we got out no problem. Uh, and we went out, we went fishing, we caught some fish. You should have seen the one that got away. Man, Jonah style. We got back and uh, we got the boat up on the trailer and my brother-in-law had a little compact four-wheel drive pickup and we're in the sand and then we start getting stuck. And that's a moment when you've got waves coming in and you're getting stuck in the sand. You start getting a little bit higher, like, so I'm trying to push my wife and his wife are in the other vehicle and they're watching this, mocking us. Are you glad you saved the 10 bucks now, boys? Yes! All right, so we're pushing, pushing, and he's driving, and, and then all of a sudden, this guy from nowhere just appears next to me and he starts pushing with me, right? I'm like, are you an angel from God? Thank you, all right? So he helps and we manage to get the truck out and we get up on the road and I'm like, hey, man, thank you so much. I said, what, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm hitchhiking down the coast. Anyway, I could grab a ride with you guys. I'm like, of course, you saved our lives. Hop in. So all three of us are packed in the front of this little single cab compact truck. So that's really fun. But for me, 
it's an opportunity to witness, right? You are a captive audience. You're going nowhere and you're close to me, right? So I start asking him the questions, you know, and, and finally I get to Jesus. I'm like, well, do you know Jesus? He's like, oh yeah, I know Jesus. I was there. I said, what? I said, Jesus, not Jesus, man. He goes, I know. Jesus, I was there. I'm like, were you born in Israel? I, I played along, I shouldn't have. I'm like, so what, were you born in Israel or something? He's like, oh no, I was born in Antarctica. Like, Antarctica? Nothing's born in, only penguins are born in Antarctica. What are you talking about? We've seen March of the Penguins. You would not survive. He's like, no, I was born there. I'm like, well, well, who's your mom? He said, I don't know who my mom was. She left me there. I'm like, what? <laughs> How old were you when your mom left you in Antarctica? He goes, oh, I was six months old. Okay. So what did you eat when your mom left you at six months old in Antarctica? He goes, well, I drank glacier melt and I learned to fish like a penguin. Like, Golly, dude. Okay, let's get back to Jesus. All right, all right. This is gone <laughs> somewhere I did not expect. Jesus, okay. So we were talking about, I said, so, so, okay. How, how did you get to Israel then to, to live with Jesus? How'd you do that? Did you swim across to South Africa and then like hike through the continent to Israel? He said, oh, oh no, I swam to England. Do you know how far Antarctica is from England? No. I said, it's 8,000 miles, bro. Yeah, I swam 8,000 miles. At this point, my brother-in-law just can take it no longer. He just leans over and goes, listen, man, we don't believe a word you're saying, right? So we happen to pull over to get some gas right at that point, and we're filling up, and my brother-in-law looks at him and says, bro, the ocean's right there. Swim to your next spot. <laughs> to which he said, yeah, I don't want to get wet. I said, it's too late, man. You are all wet, bro. Why do you believe somebody? Well, there's some reasons. Number one is the plausibility of what they're saying. I'm six months old. I lived on Antarctica and learned to fish like a penguin. Yeah, bro, that just doesn't happen. Sorry, right? So plausibility of, of what someone's saying is one thing. N number two, witnesses. And there's a bunch of people that say the same thing. We were all there and we saw Sasquatch. He's real, right? We saw the aliens, they came down right here. So enough witnesses, you start saying, mm, okay. But really the key to anything is the credibility of the person. Do you trust that person? Have they proved to you time and time again that they are people of their word? That if they say it, it happened. That if they promise you that they will do it, they'll do it. That if they say they're going to be there at noon, they're going to be there at noon unless they're dead. It's their, their credibility. It's their character. That's what you believe, okay? So when someone doesn't believe me, someone doesn't believe you, that at a certain level, they're not believing your character, right? They're saying something about you as a person that you're not actually a believable kind of person. And that can affect us. Well, what we're going to see is God. God looks at unbelief very differently than you and me. That men, when someone does not believe us, it is a challenge to our manhood. It's what? Do you want some of these? 
or what? I will show you, which means I'm gonna end up in the emergency room, that I will do whatever is necessary now to prove to you that what I said I can do. So it affects us because innately all men have a little bit of insecurity, some more than others. And then unbelief, yeah, so many giggles. I hope you're not married. (laughs) All of us at some level are like, yeah, I'm insecure about who I am. So when someone calls that out in a man, then it's like, okay, I will show you and this might kill me, but it does not matter because that's the way we respond. But if you read the Bible, God does not respond that way. God is not insecure. God's not worried about what I think about his character. God has none of those hangups. And what you see in the Bible is unbelief grinds God's work to a halt. God just says, oh, you don't believe me? Okay, fine, I won't do it then. It's like that simple in the Bible. So we're gonna look at unbelief. We're gonna look at what caused unbelief in this crew, in our story. But then we're gonna also look at I think what Jesus does and the context of this is just incredible to me. Jesus begins to pastor his crew, begins to pastor them. And so we're gonna look at how you and I can cultivate lives, a belief of faith, all right? So the context is so important to this. If you haven't been with us for the last couple of times, let me fill you in on what Mark has been doing. He has been looking at some of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. So the first one was, they're in a class five hurricane on a lake. The disciples think they're going to die. These are men that grew up on that lake. They knew it and they're afraid they're going to die. It's that big of a hurricane. And Jesus wakes up and he shushes that hurricane like you would quiet a child. Be quiet and stay quiet, gone. And they marvel what manner of man is this? They come to the other side of the lake. Jesus gets off the boat and he faces the largest demonic force in scripture and he banishes it with a word. Then he's walking along and this woman who for 12 years had spent every dime she had, gone to every doctor, tried everything possible, had only been made worse and worse and worse. This woman reaches out and touches his hem, grabs his pant leg, and she's immediately healed. And he walks into this room where this girl is dead. And he lifts her out of the grave like you would lift a sleeping child. Like it's just story after story after story. You're like going, wow! And then wet blanket, chapter six. Wet blanket, Jesus shows up to his hometown. I don't believe him. And we're looking at this because there are lots of reasons why God doesn't do what we want. Do you know that? Sometimes God doesn't do what we want because of 2 Corinthians 12, nine, where he says, my grace is sufficient for you right? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes God doesn't do our miracle because he says, you don't need a miracle, Matt. You need my grace. And I'm going to show you grace in the midst of this difficulty. Sometimes God doesn't do what we want because he just says, no, I'm not doing that because he's God and he can. And sometimes God just says, wait, I'll do it later. But in all those things, we don't have control over any of that. I can't control those things. 
But when it comes to belief, it's the one thing that I have a little bit of an ability to control, a little bit of an ability to do something about it. So that's why this story is so important. It's the one area that you and I have some partnership in. It's our belief, our faith, right? So that's where we're gonna look at this. So again, let me just repeat what's happened. Jesus comes to his hometown. He should be a hero, right? The Bible says, did anything good come out of Nazareth? It's John chapter one. And the answer is no, until Jesus. He is the one giant thing that's come out of Nazareth. He should be a hometown hero. There should be pride in him. It'd be like us with Dutch Bros right now, right? The IPO and, and you know, Travis on the floor of the Wall Street. Like, oh, that's amazing, right? That's cool. Should have been like that. Like, whoa, this is awesome. So Jesus comes home. What does he do? He teaches. They listen. And they're astonished. Like, he is better than advertised. We can't believe him. They marvel at his works. So the story of him calming the storm and the hem of the garment, those are starting to spread around. So much so at the end of chapter six, people are grabbing the hem of his garment and getting healed. So his stories are going out. They're like, wow, this is incredible. But then there's a 180 degree turn on Jesus. Where then they start to say, wait a second. Now what happened? I think there were conversations in the marketplace. I think there was cups of tea and like, you know, Jesus. And they start to kind of put him down. And here's the three things they do to him. Number one, it's his pedigree. So they say this, he's a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. He didn't go to Harvard. He doesn't have a PhD. Who does he think he is? What does he think he's able to speak on these topics that he hasn't researched enough? Are you kidding me? He's getting a little too big for his britches. He's just a carpenter. I'll tell you what today, I think if you want the truth, ask a carpenter, ask an electrician, ask a plumber, ask a drywaller. You know why? Because here's what every study has shown. People that invest heavily in themselves through schooling, through whatever it is, they attain a certain amount of status. And when you have status, you do not wanna lose that. And so what they have shown time and time again is when you reach status, you will not go against the flow of whatever, what, the majority. You won't because you're too afraid of losing. I got 12 years invested here. I don't wanna rock the boat. But a carpenter, he's always gonna have work. And so a carpenter is much more willing to say, man, this is the truth. I don't really care what you think. I'll still build your deck. All right, fine, build my deck, right? So Jesus here, no, I don't have any status to lose. I'm going to tell you the truth. And they didn't like it. Number two, his parents. Notice what they say. Is he not the son of Mary? Why didn't they say, is this not the son of Joseph? This is a patriarchal society. You were always, you, you tr look at the genealogies in Genesis. It tracks through the male. That's what it does. Tracks through the male. Look at the genealogies that begin Matthew. It tracks through the males. Every once in a while, there's a female in there and there's a reason why. It's usually because something bad happened to her, right? And it's God saying, 
all are included in my family. This is a patriarchal society. Why are they saying he's the son of Mary? Because there'd been long standing questions about the birth of Jesus. That somehow Mary and Joseph got married and a month later, Jesus was born. Hmm, doesn't take a genius to say, wait a second. They'd heard the story about, oh, the Holy Spirit, the immaculate conception. Oh yeah, sure, right, that happened. So these questions were always there around Jesus. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John chapter eight, the questions are brought up then. They say he's a Samaritan. We don't even know who your dad is. You could be a Samaritan, right? There's all these questions about his birth. Jesus can never outrun them. Ever felt that way in life? There's these things, these questions about your character, these questions about your upbringing, these questions about you that you just can't seem to outrun. They can be lies. They can be rumors, but they just seem to hold on tenaciously like a pandemic. They just don't seem to go away. Like, ah, how long can this last? It's like that, right? So they had these questions about his parents. Number three, their perception of him. Like we know him, we know his brother, James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon and his sisters. They had a perception of him. We know all about Jesus. There's a saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Ah, we know him. Are you kidding me? Ah, we got him pegged. We know all about Jesus. We know his family. We know his whole history. Are you kidding me? I tell people, parents especially, be careful how you present Jesus to your children because there is a familiar way to present Jesus where we kind of tidy Jesus up and make him kind of safe and and take out some of the harsh things that he did. Now, don't talk about the time he made a whip and drove everybody out of the temple. Don't talk about the time that he just absolutely tore into the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 20. Let's make Jesus safe and kind and nice. Let's take off his rough edges. When you do that, look out. Because the safe Jesus causes kids to be like, no, that's not a real person. That's not real. He's not real. And then what can happen in kids, because they've only been taught to save Jesus, is they begin to go look for something strange and weird. Have you noticed that? They turn 18, 19, and then they go off looking for something more radical, more rough. They come back, well, I'm a Rastafarian now. Or I'm a Buddhist. I believe in Bud. That's what I believe in. Okay, whatever. (laughs) No, present Jesus. The hardest parts of Jesus are the best parts of him. Right? You present him just as he is, okay? They got familiar with him. And some pastors fear familiarity as well. And so what they'll do is they'll keep people at arm's length because if you can keep people at arm's length, then they don't realize that, you know what? You're just normal. You're not special. Madame, the opposite. I invite conversations with people. I invite people to come meet with me because here's what they do. They meet with me one time. They're like, dude, you're really normal. I'm like, yes, I am. So it's one and done. Like, well, you're not any special. Totally. I love that. There is no hero in Christianity but Jesus. There is not a red S underneath this shirt. There's one hero. And if I can get you to put your faith in Jesus and trust him by one meeting, I'll gladly do that. I'll be painfully ordinary and normal, 100%.
please have contempt for me if it's going to lead you to put your faith in Jesus, right? So that's what they do. Ah, just a carpenter. Ah, we don't know about his parents. Nah, we know him, right? And all of that leads to, and they were offended by him. Do you know that Jesus is an equal opportunity offender? That he will, his life will offend you. Pay attention as we go through the gospel of Mark. No one responds to Jesus like this. Meh. Hey, what do you think about Jesus? Meh. Right? No one. There are three responses to Jesus. Fear. Ah, he's getting me. Number two, fall down and worship him. Number three, we have to kill him. Those are the three responses to Jesus. None of them are like, meh. It's, ah, get away from him. Ah, I'm falling down and worshiping him. Or ah, we have to kill this guy. That's the responses to Jesus. No one is Man, he will offend you. The liberals love to quote, love your neighbor, when Jesus says that. The liberals love to quote, turn the other cheek. But man, they are offended when Jesus says, I am singular, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but by me. His exclusivity. They get offended when Jesus says, Matthew chapter 19, sex is between one man and one woman for one life, period. They get offended at that. Right? Conservatives love the morals of Jesus, the sexual ethics of Jesus. But they get offended when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and then you'll find eternal life. What? That's unfair. I worked hard, man. I applied myself. I got skills. I've used them. I deserve this money. To which I always say, really? Take all your mad skills and get born in the 13th century in Mongolia. How successful would you be? You wouldn't. You'd be a peasant. At some level, you have to have a lot of gratitude for the place that you've been born and the time that you've been born. Right? That's a gift from God. Right? So Jesus will offend you. He will offend me. You're going to be okay being offended. Now, there are times, no doubt, that I offend people. I say some people are passive aggressive. I am aggressive aggressive. I get that. I know me. I know my heart, right? And when I just offend people and it's on me, I go and apologize and say, man, I am so sorry. I blew it. I over, you know, I'm sorry. But I'll tell you, when I teach the Bible and Jesus offends people, I never, ever apologize for that. Listen, this is not a problem with me. You got a problem with Jesus. Deal with it. And sometimes being offended by Jesus is the best place you can ever be because there's something warped in me. Straighten me out. Straighten me out, okay? The repercussions of this, though, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It's verse five. He could do no mighty, he could do no, he could do, God Almighty, God in the flesh, he could do no mighty work. Is that the craziest verse in the Bible? The unbelief of Nazareth limited Jesus, God, the Son. How sad is that? 
What's even sadder is this, it's not new. Go to the Old Testament. God grabbed a group of people that are under the thumb of a Pharaoh and by 10 mighty powerful signs, he gets them released. He parts the Red Sea, they go across. For two years, he feeds them every morning manna and then he brings them to the banks of the Jordan River and says, this land across this river, I give it to you. Go in there and take it. And they send in 12 spies. And the 12 spies go through the land and they're like, man, it is an amazing land. It's a great land. But 10 of the spies say, yeah, but time out. We can't take the land. Why can't we take the land? The people in there are, they're, they're, they're really tall. What? No, they're really, they're like 6'6", six, six, man. 6'2", six, we could totally take them. But 6'6", six, six, I don't know. And 10 people, their unbelief, convinces two million people to go on a 40-year death march. And God did not let them in, okay? All right, I'm not gonna let you in. How sad is that? So I think Jesus knows this. So he's got 12 disciples that are gonna have some struggles with faith. You read the gospels and they have a nickname, it's ye of little faith. So Jesus knows These 12 are gonna struggle in their faith. So I'm gonna pass them. I'm gonna shepherd them. And he gives, I think, this account that I went through and found a bunch of reasons. I'm only gonna give you four. But there's these four keys that I think if you and I wanna cultivate faith, we should look at what Jesus does to his disciples in the context of this chapter. Unbelief, just a wet blanket on what Jesus had been doing. Grabs his 12 and he does something for them. Each of us can do this in our own life to cultivate faith. So here are the four. Number one. Get a buddy. Verse seven. And he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Number one, you want your faith to be strong? You need a buddy. You need a buddy. Jesus grabs his disciples and sends them out two by two because the enemy knows something. If I can get a Christian separated from the flock, if I can get him off by himself, get her off by herself, I can begin in his life to begin to sow into their mind these seeds of doubt. And man, they grow in isolation. That's fertile land, fertile soil. Isolation is the worst. So what he tries to do to believers is this. Let me just get you by yourself. Let me act like you're the only one. It works with Elijah. Read Elijah's story, right? He has this moment of doubt when he was by himself. And the first thing God says to Elijah is, go get a buddy. Go to Elisha. You need a buddy. Throughout the New Testament, there's this phrase that's used almost a hundred times. It's one another. Hey, one another, one another, one another, one another because you need it. That Old Testament story where the 10 convinced 2 million on a 40-year death mark, there were two guys that stood against them. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. If it was just Joshua or just Caleb, I bet anything they would have kept their mouth shut. But because they had a buddy, they're like, hey, we can stand against them. The antidote to 50 enemies is one friend. Do you know that? 
If you've got one person at work or one person in your neighborhood or one other buddy, it's amazing how you can just deflect 50 enemies, 50 people that come against you. That's what Jesus is saying. You need a buddy. That our faith is no doubt personal, but never is it supposed to be private. That we are supposed to be around other people that help us in the faith. And so we have a lot of things here at Edgewater to try to cultivate friendships. We have community groups to cultivate friendships. We have men's events, right? And I know men were always in a hurry. So we took the men's events and we actually put them in the bathroom where you have a minute to do nothing. So read what's happening, get involved. And hopefully in that, you find friends that will cultivate your relationship with Jesus. We've got women's stuff. There's women's activities. There's women's Mondays, all kinds of stuff. There's a ton of ways to be involved because our goal is this right here. You've got to have someone else with you. That Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's what we want. Two people sharpening each other, getting stronger, standing against 50 enemies that would come against them. So number one, Jesus says, Get a buddy, sending out two by two. Number two, take a risk. Verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Take a risk. Jesus says, hey, when you guys go out two by two, don't pack a big old backpack. In fact, don't even take an extra coat because on this trip, you are going to have to trust me. And if I don't move or do something, you're gonna starve, literally. I think, this is Matt Heverly, little happens of importance without risk. In me as an individual, as me and my family, as a church, as a business, that little of importance ever happens without risk. And the catalyst for risk is always faith. And when you take risk, it actually gives you greater faith. David, as a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old or however old he was, as a little shepherd boy, can you imagine the amount of faith it would take for him to face Goliath the giant? with a slingshot, and he did, and his faith grew. Moses, a shepherd that Pharaoh wanted to kill, how much faith would it be to go marching back into that Pharaoh's throne room and say, let my people go? And he did, he risked it, and his faith grew. Esther, how much faith would it take to march, in, march into the king's throne room unannounced, unheralded, unwanted, knowing that could be your death sentence. If he doesn't put the scepter down, my head gets separated from my neck. And he, she did. And her faith grew. I go on and on and on and on. Paul, man, great risk. Throughout church history, you watch church history, the great moves of God always had some kind of risk. That's the way it was risk. Remember four years ago, there was a risk I took. Not with conventional wisdom, not with the normal 
capital campaign that most people use, right? Didn't do any of that. Didn't say, hey, if you will give up your sugary drinks for you know, three months and give us the 20 bucks every month, we'll raise enough money, right? What was our capital campaign to build this place? I just said, we need a million dollars in a month. That's nuts. I look back on that, I go, I was nuts. That's crazy. But little in life happens without risk. The person you're sitting next to right now was a risk, was she not? Was he not? Yeah, is she the one? Is he the one? You had to take a risk. What I found is this risk always requires faith. But when we risk, man, power's released. And when power's released, there's joy in that moment. That there's like a string. Faith, risk, power, joy. Maybe God's been knocking on your heart and you'll know it's God because it's persistent. Take this risk. Try this. Do this for me. Can I encourage you? Man, that's how great faith is cultivated. All right, Lord. This doesn't look like conventional wisdom. This doesn't look like the way other people would do it. But I feel strongly that you're calling me to this kind of risk and I'm gonna step out and I'm going to trust you. Man, great faith. But Matt, my worry is this. What will people say? Okay, next thing. You have to reject the rejection. Look what Jesus says to his disciples. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. You have to reject the rejection. You gotta just shake it off. You will be rejected. Be okay with that. Shake it off. So I remember four years ago when we had that campaign, as could only happen, $1 million in one month, crazy. As could only happen the next Thursday, I'm in an all-pastors meeting for Grant's Pass in this meeting, and in that meeting, the guy leading it said, oh, I heard Edgewater is going to build a building, and this is her campaign. I didn't have a thermometer up here. I didn't have modern campaign techniques. And Google it, there's a million of them out there, right? This is their ad campaign, or this is their campaign. We need a million dollars in a month. Every pastor in that room laughed. They just cracked up. And for a moment, I remember sitting there thinking, Oh my goodness, I am nuts. This is going to be the stupidest thing I've ever done, which says a lot because I've done some stupid things in my life. I just like, oh, I've made a giant mistake, right? And then the emails and the phone calls started pouring in. You can't do it this way, right? One of the pastors that actually gave me his card says, I've run a bunch of capital campaigns to build buildings. Call me when you need help. I remember thinking on that Friday, I was just sitting there in my office just going, oh no, oh no. This could be the most embarrassing thing ever. I remember there's like almost, put it in my heart, Matt, give me a month. Matt, give me a month. Okay, Lord, I'll give you a month. You have to reject the rejection. I think, sadly, we have become so comfortable with our culture now that one of our greatest fears is rejection. But isn't that what the Bible is full of? 
God's people being rejected? Isn't that the theme of scripture? Jesus said, expect it. If they did it to me, it's gonna happen to you. But now like our greatest fear is being rejected. How different was the, the early church was? Look at Acts 5, when they are being rejected by their culture. They were beat, beat with a cat of nine tails. Their back shredded for their faith. And it says this, when they left there, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. Right, Peter and John, yipping and yelling. John, look at my back. What, Peter? You can see my backbone. Praise Jesus, high five. Where's that today? Right, we don't do that today at all. That's the way they lived, right? Be re you know why they did it? I think because Jesus prepared them. He prepared them over and over. Look, you're gonna be rejected. Look, you're gonna be rejected. So shake it off. We're to be misfits. We're to be pilgrims. We're not to fit with this culture. We're a square peg in a round hole. Do you know that? And I'll tell you, I am so glad I don't fit with this culture. I do not wanna fit with this culture. Not one bit. Call me square, totally. I am square because I don't wanna square up with this culture. It's the way it's been for 2,000 years. And if you don't fit with culture, man, you are in really good company because Jesus didn't fit with it either. So reject the rejection. And ultimately, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. So you shake it off. And fourthly and lastly, you need mission. So they went out. You wanna underline something? Underline that. They didn't have planning meetings for it. They didn't think about it. They didn't get counsel. They didn't even pray about it. Why? Because Jesus had just told them to do it. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You know what repent is? You are wrong and need to change. That's what repent is. Repent is negative. This isn't a soft, fuzzy good news. This is what you're doing and how you're living is wrong and you need to change the way you're living to this way of living. That's what repent is. It's not a happy message right there. It's a message of repentance. What you're doing, how you're living is incorrect. Change. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil and many who are sick and healed them. Mission. I think a lot of people's faith is perishing because they're not on mission. They're wondering, what am I doing? And we're to be on mission. In the last 18 months, because of COVID, because of this, for me personally has been one of the, no, it's been the hardest period to be a pastor. Because there was a time where it felt like every week something was changing. And we were in meetings trying to pivot, like how do we pivot to keep meeting? How do, we, how do we respond to this? Felt like every week I was getting some kind of a nasty email or I was having to call a government agency or deal with this thing. And it was just like, it was wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. And I'm just like, I dreaded Mondays, like here it comes, golly, right? But I'll tell you in the midst of that time, it's been some of the most fertile ground ever for preaching the gospel. Like I've had Jesus conversation with people I never thought I would ever have a Jesus conversation with. Why? Because they've lost hope in this world. 
because they're telling me the world is unfair. I'm like, yeah, that's what the Bible said for a long time. Yeah, totally. Expecting the world to be fair is like expecting a bull not to charge you because you're a vegetarian. It does not care. Okay, <laughs> let's get past that. I can tell people, hard's not bad, man. This is how we grow. This is how we develop. This is how we're changed. It's amazing to me. Hard is totally, but man, good. I've had more conversations with people on the end times, like, right? The last big one was, I think it was 2012, remember, held camping. You know, the world guy that put the posters or the billboards all over the place, remember that? I mean, that was just like, it was an onslaught with him. And he kept changing the date, like, oh, it didn't happen. So he kept moving it, moving it, moving it. Like, oh, that's typical, right? So that guy, my end calendar, it's the end of the world, right? All that stuff. This has been the next big one where people are like, is this the end of the world? They keep begging me, Matt, would you please teach the book of Revelation? So guess what book I chose instead? The gospel of Jesus according to Mark. Here's why. Revelation is like ice cream. What we need is the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Those things are interesting and fascinating, no doubt. And it's, it's a great, fun thing. But I do Revelation to get people to Jesus. So I thought, well, I'll just go to Jesus instead. I'll skip the intermediate step and let's just talk about Jesus because this is what people need. The one that calms the storm, the one that has defeated the enemy, the one that will heal you, the one that has conquered death itself. It's him. He's our hope. That's why I'm in the gospel of Mark. That's why I'm taking us through this because this is solid, rock solid Christianity. It's Jesus. He's our hope, right? So yeah, we need buddies, no doubt. And yes, we gotta take risks. And yes, we gotta know we're gonna be rejected. But we need a mission saying, I wanna be with team Jesus. I wanna partner with him because there's no better thing to be involved in. It's why every single service on Sundays, we end with communion because he's the hero. Everything else is sinking sand. He is the hero. So grab your elements Jesus, we hold in our hands your broken body. May this be the testament of why we can put our faith in you. If God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? Romans 8, 32. This is the proof. And we can trust you. We can put our faith in you. We hold it. May we eat of your goodness even now. Let's eat together. The cup, if you don't know, press down on that little square triangle. Press up maybe once or twice. It breaks off. The foil comes off real easy. And we hold the cup. The cup of cleansing, the cup of forgiveness. And many of us, myself included, we can be so clouded by doubt and unbelief. 
and we can feel shame over that, and we can run from you. Instead, let us learn the lesson of the man who came to you and said, I believe. And in the next breath, help my unbelief. Oh, that's so many of us here today. We believe. And then we walk out of these doors and the enemy attacks and life is hard. And we say, help our unbelief. So even today, I confess my unbelief. And I pray as I drink of this cup that you would forgive me and you would cleanse me of that. That you would help my unbelief. I pray that for everyone in here who has my same struggle. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll end with a song. After that song, you can be dismissed. Or there's prayer up here. People will be up here that would love to pray for you. We think prayer is really important. We think that there's an opportunity right now to cast things in the moment with God's spirit on you that he can do great work through prayer. So come up and get prayer for anything that you need. And we offer baptism. Both of the sacraments of Christianity, communion and baptism, what they are, are embodied remembrances. That when you take communion, you're not passive, right? You can't passively take communion. You have to actively take the bread and eat it. You're, you're participating in it, embodied remembrance. You have to drink the cup. It's not like listening to a teaching. You're involved. Well, baptism is another aspect of embodied remembrance. It's okay. I've trusted Jesus as my savior. And now his commandment to me is to be baptized. And I'm remembering in baptism, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. I have to embody that in a way. I have to live it now because he's my king. And so if you're saying, I haven't been baptized yet, or I don't know if I believe in Jesus, either one of those questions right over here will be somebody that will either tell you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus, or for those that have put their faith in Jesus and are saying, we want to be baptized, they can be baptized. We'd love to partner with you in that. If you're doing well, I'm happy, really happy. Would you stand for one final song?